The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tong. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. Thank you for joining us today. Really interesting times in the world and I'm getting this really strong sense that every single one of us is being pushed to the edge of our ability to cope in this 3D world and the reason for that is that we need to look beyond and connect to the higher vibrational frequencies that are coming through that are available to us and if we're ignoring that we're being pushed to the edge until we pay attention to it. And for that reason, I'm delighted to welcome to the show to my host, my guest today, Micah Hanks. Micah has has studied all that's difficult to study in the spiritual realms, the paranormal, the supernatural, whatever you want to call it, and has really uh, brought all the ideas together in in a beautiful way. So we're going to be talking about many different elements of uh, the psychic realms, some of which are extremely comfortable. um, what's the right word? Controversial. And uh, Micah has done a wonderful job in researching this and bringing a, a really grounded approach to this work. So, Micah, welcome to the show. Peter, it is my absolute uh, privilege to be here today. Thank you so much for having me on the program. One of the, uh, the, the books that you wrote a few years ago was called Magic Mysticism and the Molecule, which I found to be a, an interesting title. So why don't you uh, give our listeners a, a bit of an insight into you and, and talk about that title and why that title? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll preface this also by saying that uh, right off the bat, uh, when I proposed that title, uh, you know, my, my current publisher, uh, New Page Books, I'd actually sent the book to them. And uh, it being my first book, I ultimately ended up new, uh, self-publishing just because um, that for a first title, Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, uh, was a bit controversial. Uh, both my, the, you know, the mainstream publishers and also my friends in the publishing industry, um, many of whom I ran the manuscript and the idea the premise by uh, at the outset, they said, you know, really, you've got to be careful when you put out a book. Uh, like this, because you will be branded. You will, you will, if you write this book, you will forever be known as the person who observes the mystical, the person who observes the entheogenic altered states, and a lot of really, really controversial subjects that many people would even view as being dangerous. Um, so, what do I mean by magic, mysticism, and the molecule? As the subtitle of the book states, it's the search for sentient intelligence from other worlds. So, there is, you know, in a sense, kind of an, a, a kind of a cosmological. Um, motif that arises there, but really where I was trying to go with this book was um, I wanted to examine my personal fascination with humanity's longing 
and their search for our search for others, the other, if you will. And that, that, that concept of the other, something that exists alongside us but apart from humanity, is a recurrent theme throughout that book. Um, and my methodologies for searching for the other, as opposed to looking, you know, for instance, in caves in the ground, you know, for some sort of a, you know, a proto-human spe- subspecies or something like that, or looking to the sky for an alien visitor from another planet, I chose to look through the lens of the archetypal, through at times the imaginary, uh, and through the very soul stuff that puts us in what we would call the realm of the spiritual. Uh, and hence, magic looks at the actual magical ritual and the processes employed by others throughout history for purposes of trying to evoke contact with this proverbial other. The mysticism comes into question of looking within as opposed to trying to bend the forces of nature to our own will as we would do with magic and ritual. And looking within instead into the solitude of the oneness within and trying to find those sorts of answers and perhaps the potential that there is something more than merely ourselves in both a a mystical and also, I think, in a philosophical sense. And then finally, with the molecule, yes, we do look at that ever-controversial potential that entheogenic substances, God-releasing substances, molecules with the capacity to induce hallucinogenic states, altering our consciousness, could also lead to this state of mind. Uh, in retrospect, three or four years after the fact, I've gone on to be much better known as a, as a UFO researcher, but the philosophy to me, Peter, is at the very heart of all of this, and I put a lot of heart into it. And, and therefore, for me, I'm, I'm in retrospect very glad that Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule is my first book, and I'm absolutely uh, you know, glad to be talking about it today because to me, uh, the accumulation of more knowledge only strengthens my feeling that indeed it's those smaller aspects of the uh, of the what we would call the greater reality, the little the little pinholes of light that break through the cracks in the edifice that really point to the greater understandings. I don't think we have to have the full on experience of seeing a UFO or a ghost or some sort of a strange apparitional vision. It's those little things, the synchronicities. Magic mysticism, the molecule, it begins with those rather than going to the overt and the extreme to try and find those answers. So really interesting that you use the word or the expression the other because right now we are in Libra and Libra is the seventh sign and it's the first sign after you've gone around the landscape zodiac journey for the first six. It's the first sign where there is an opposition there is another so Libra is all about relationship with the other and in this case of course you're talking about relationship with the other which comes from a realm which is invisible to us normally and involves very much the subtle energies so so it's perfect timing that we're actually doing this right now in in Libra Um, but coming back to the book I I, when I looked through it I was really fascinated to see that some of the uh, people that you talk about in the book are people that I've spent some time studying and I, I want to take you back to the, the magical aspects of this and perhaps you could talk a little bit about uh, the, the couple John D and Edward Kelly who uh, were on the planet around 1600, around the time of Queen Elizabeth and Shakespeare and John D was actually um, Queen Elizabeth's official um, scientist, astronomer actually, although he was doing much more than that. So in terms of, of perhaps using the example of John Dee and Edward Kelly, you could talk a bit about what the magical actually means. Well, absolutely. They're a, they're a fine couple to begin with. Of course, <laughs> the history of magic, of course, 
I think can be traced all the way back to the dawn of civilization. What, what it all comes down to is really the economics of existence. A human being seeks to try and live, and of course to live as comfortably as possible. And in, in, in ancient times, we would, uh, as opposed to what we've supplanted with technology today, where we make our lives uh, easily uh, and, and more readily uh, attainable and comfortable through the utilization of systems and technologies and, 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 and the like, uh, in ancient times when we didn't have the kind of structure and the hierarchy of systems and technologies that, that if in a sense, automated existence for us and made things bend to our will, uh, ancient man certainly sought to do the same thing but looked at it in a different way. What we hoped to do in ancient times was to appeal to the forces of nature, to appeal to gods, if you will, or you know, devils, demigods, deities, all these kinds of personages. Uh, we appeal to these individuals and we bend the ways of nature by appealing to them. We make a sacrifice, for instance, to the sun god, and the sun god therefore will show favor upon us or bring a mighty wind that blows a rain cloud across our fields and thus uh, you know, allows our crops to grow. This is, I think, the essence of magic is trying to appeal to nature, and, and actually magic could be defined as trying to you know, utilize processes, which is where the ritual kind of comes into question, utilize processes that supernaturally bend the forces of nature, in a sense, to our liking, to our benefit. Now, Edward Kelly and John Dee were much further along. There wasn't necessarily that, that ancient necessity so much present with them. John Dee, for instance, had a very specific reason for wanting to try to uh, evoke magical entities, uh, which he called Enochian angels. Uh, and, and the reason for this was that I think he was trying to essentially categorize an angelic language that could be used for communicating with the other, as he perceived it. Now, uh, I've debated with, with a number of my colleagues about this. Uh, Dr. John Ward of Luxor, Egypt, as well as uh, Dr. Uh, John DeSalvo of the Twin Cities area. Both of them will actually be uh, in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota with me here in about a week at the Paradigm Symposium. But we've talked about John D. together um, on a number of occasions because there's a lot of contentious debate about really what he was after, what he was trying to do with his magic. If he were a godly Christian, as history holds that he was, why was he so involved with magic? John D., very much was, according to what we know of him historically, was a Christian. But he believed also that there was an esoteric aspect to Christianity that through magical processes would allow him to have direct discourse with the angelic realm. Now, Edward Kelly, on the other hand, comes into the equation more as kind of the medium, whereas John Dee was the individual who was the operator. He was the seeker. He had this goal. Edward Kelly was the medium by whom, uh, literally, I guess he was kind of the middle man by whom John Dee could commune with the others, with the other realm, or at very least John Dee believed that Edward Kelly allowed him to do this. Now, a skeptical approach to this would say that Edward Kelly was a con man who had basically given uh, John Dee everything that he wanted to hear and perhaps a few things he didn't want to hear as long as it benefited Kelly. History remembers Kelly as a bit of a liar, uh, a person who had committed fraud, but also, as I mentioned in the book, a man who later in life, with his own alchemical studies, I think had repented from some of that. And I do believe that at the, at the heart of the matter, Edward Kelly was a man who truly did have interest in magic and who had a sincerity to his character. Now, this was recognized, of course, by uh, Aleister Crowley, the infamous magician, later on, who even said, you know, 
John D. he is of note, but Edward Kelly is the man who should be the focus between the two of them. So their magical processes really were kind of something that stemmed from the Christian perspectives that John D. had attained. He was devout about this. He hoped to be able to catalog an Anakian script from these angels that he believed Edward Kelly helped him to commune with. And it wasn't necessarily an evil kind of a black magic, as often magic is perceived as being here in the uh, you know, Judeo-Christian West. It was very much a thing that actually kind of complemented his religious beliefs. But by the same token, it was an esoteric aspect that we don't see in, uh, very present very readily in modern uh, religious traditions in the West today. So it's interesting to look at Kelly and John Dee because they were, if anything, kind of the archetypal wizards of their day and have kind of set the stage for this concept of a magician even in modern times, John Dee especially. So, Micah, what was their actual method of, of connecting with these Enochian angels? It was the utilization of what was called a shoe stone, which, you know, for, for lack of a better term, was essentially a crystal ball or philosopher's stone, you might even call it. Uh, it's known by many names, but it would be a, a reflective surface that would be utilized for a process of, you know, very similar to what is known as scrying. Now, um, John Dee also had a black obsidian mirror that had been given to him. Uh, it had actually, I, I think it had been brought back from uh, Middle Americas by Cortez, but the story goes that uh, through a process of scrying, looking across a darkened, reflective surface, that uh, one, and I've actually experimented with this myself, as many, many others have, it can be uh, done very simply with a, a, a black ceramic bowl filled with warm water in a dark room. Uh, the process would be to look across this reflective surface, but not look into it at one's own reflection. Look at it at an angle so that you have kind of the the unending the optical death, the, the illusion of infinity, and that through this process, uh, Edward Kelly would hope to try and behold visions which he would communicate back to John D. Now, I should point out, however, before we get up on the break here, that John D. had actually said that on at least one or possibly two occasions in his life, Nadimi, an actual Enochian angel, had manifested before him and that he had seen her physically on at least one notable occasion. So he did believe that he had actually had direct correspondence and communication, contact, if you will, with the other. But typically it was utiliz utilizing the shoe stone, uh, the looking glass methodology employed by his associate, Edward Kelly, who acted as the medium. That's typically how they would do it in the technical sense. So, Michael, we are coming up to our first break, so we'll take that break now. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about your experience with the uh, screening uh, methodology. Absolutely. It, it's Pinatung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. is the 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Being Outside the Box is your thrival guide to living outside this reality. Are you always waiting for your ship to come in? Do problems happen to you? What if you created your life rather than sitting by waiting? 
Do you live in the fantasies of this reality? Winning the lottery, waiting for your prince, princess to come, even being healthy? Do you always do what is expected of you rather than choosing for you? What if the rules didn't apply, and what if you could thrive from a different space? Join host Lynn Waldrop for Tools to Being Outside the Box. Listen Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. Just a reminder to go to my website, www.petertongue.com, where all of the information resides about the work that we're doing through our newsletters and through the radio shows. And also to www.myheartcenteredjourney.com and our Ambassadors of Light class, where I give a a talk every couple of weeks on what is happening in the world today from my perspective and all of the energetics that are leading us on this phenomenal journey of uh, enlightenment as we move forward. I have with me today Micah Hanks, and we're having an f- absolutely fascinating discussion about some of my favorite topics and some of my favorite people, actually. And Micah, before the break, you were talking about the screeing or scrying that John D. and Edward Kelly used to do. And, and as you said, you've had the experience yourself. So tell us what that was like. Well, you know, I first became interested in that after uh, being introduced to Dr. Raymond Moody, who had written a number of books, uh, one of them, I think, Life After Life, Reflections. Uh, you know, he he was and, and still is a uh, practitioner of uh, uh, really, I guess it's it's a variety of different kinds of therapy. But uh, Raymond Moody, coming to this as a psychologist, uh, would practice grief counseling, and he had studied as a, as a you know student of history. He had studied the works of Strabo and a number of the you know Herodotus and a number of the historians that that spoke of some of the esoteric, uh, or at very least hinted at some of the esoteric traditions in ancient Greece and parts of the ancient world. Now, one that particularly enthralled Moody, which he claimed that he had come across mention of in uh, Greco-Egyptian manuscripts, had to do with the utilization of uh, a process, um, literally where a person would enter a, a uh, you know, an underground facility of some sort, I guess a labyrinth really we could call it, and that at the center of a labyrinth, after a period of fasting and, and, a, and, a, and a kind of ritual process that one goes through, an initiate might go through prior to entering this realm, this, this underground labyrinth, if they reach the center of this labyrinth where they are able to commune with the dead, literal spirits of the dead would commune with them. Now, according to a, uh, a well-known archaeologist in the 1950s, but I believe the name of Dakairis, uh, the, the idea was that, uh, first of all, there was an actual underground facility, a labyrinth of sorts, that was discovered under the hill of St. John the Baptist. And during the ex- excavations in the center of the labyrinth, they found a large cauldron of sorts that was very faintly illuminated, and it was believed that probably what would happen is that one of the 
the uh, the leaders or one of the uh, the cultists, uh, the priests there at that location would have you know robed themselves, disguised themselves in the form of a ghost and would hide in the actual cauldron so that when the initiate makes their way to the center of the labyrinth, this person would be standing there waiting and would commune with him as though they were actually a a, a, a ghost speaking with the initiate. It sounds like an absurd process. It sounds, if anything, almost like a, you know, like a, like a play or a game of some sort. Uh, it didn't make a whole lot of sense, and so Moody began to wonder if the cauldron, rather than hiding a person who played the part of a, of a ghost in a kind of an archetypal uh, production, if you will, for these initiates that were meant to have this meaning experience, he had wondered if indeed there could have been something liquid in that cauldron, water or oil perhaps, and if indeed the actual process had been that they'd been gazing across the surface of a reflective um, liquid in this cauldron, which would have elicited a strange experience, a visionary kind of experience, which is the same sort of thing that Edward Kelly had done with the shoe stone and the concept, the ancient concept of the crystal ball, you know, the magician archetypally waving his or her hands around the ball and a vision coming to them. Uh, it's, it's interesting because this act of what we would call mirror gazing uh, over the centuries uh, led Moody to the construction of the what had actually in the ancient Greek been called the Nekumantian, or borrowing a little bit of modern usage, he re-termed as the Psychomantium. And in a barn on the back side of his property, he actually placed a mirror above eye level in a darkened room to try and recreate this sort of setup that may have been found there in the labyrinth beneath the hill of St. John the Baptist in the 1950s during the famous excavation. He believed, Moody, that what had actually occurred there was a literal underworld where people would go and speak with spirits of the dead and that the very references to the, the, the like that occurred in the Odyssey where Odysseus goes and you know goes underground and actually can confer with spirits of, of the departed, this is actually what was happening, uh, according to Moody. And interestingly, as a grief counselor, he wanted to see what kind of effects would be achieved by placing people in a comfortable setting, dimly lit, staring into a mirror that was placed above eye level so that they weren't seeing their own reflection, but that they were looking across into the optical depth of infinity that I described earlier. The very same sort of thing that can be done with you know, a reflective surface or preferably liquid in a dark colored bowl in a dark room, which is referred to, again, specifically as scrying, but the same principle applies here. Moody found that he would engage in a grief counseling session, ask questions of a person, have them focus on perhaps a departed loved one, what do you remember about that person? What do you like the most about that person? What did you like the least? What was your happiest experience? And now tell me your least favorite experience that you ever had with that person. And finally, if you could tell them one thing right now, what is it that you would tell them? And he would watch for a visual cue after a while where the person had basically gotten to a point where they could say no more. And at that moment, he would take them and he would leave them maybe for 10 minutes in this room, this psychomantium he had built. Sit them in a chair and say, you know... I want you just to sit here and relax and just gaze into the mirror. And if you begin to feel uncomfortable, call for me and I'll come back and I'll, I'll fetch you. I'll leave you in for 10 minutes at first. The second session will do 20. The next session will do a little longer. And it was during these experiences where people began to literally say that they would behold visions of the individual that they had been describing during the therapy sessions with Moody. A minority, and an extinct or a distinct minority but nonetheless, a group of the individuals who had been participants would say that they would see this apparition of this person appear. Sometimes the apparition would come out of the mirror and into the room with them. 
Some people said that the apparition actually was accompanied by audible sounds that included the voice of the person. And in effect, the the sincerest minority there uh, would claim that they would have a full-on apparitional experience where they would meet the person, the, the, the departed loved one, in the room, and that they would have an actual interaction with that person. And often, Moody said that he felt that this was a very unique way of kind of initiating that closure that one seeks when grieving after the loss of a loved one. And he said that it was incredibly helpful and, and useful as a therapeutic tool. Now, I met Moody uh, a number of years ago at a, at a small event being held by Joshua P. Warren, a friend of mine who lives here in western North Carolina. And I asked Moody, I said, do you think that they are actual apparitions of the dead, or is this a psychological phenomenon? And Moody, always the, the academician, you know, he's, again, you've been criticized for his approaches and techniques, but he is a psychologist, and he told me, no, I sincerely think that this is actually a psychological process that's taking place, but it's very, very, very mysterious, and it is very interesting, and again, he felt very useful in grief counseling. So my own experiences actually take place within the context of the psychomantium, where I've actually um, participated in uh, this experience of sitting in a room, in the darkened room, staring into the mirror. And certainly one will have some revelatory experiences. I've never seen apparitions or anything like that, but I've beheld some interesting um, observational anomalies, I guess one might call them. Uh, which and, and the reason why I think is, and this is important to point out, is that when one engages in this process, it, it is capable under the right circumstances, a profoundly relaxed state, looking into a mirror. Sometimes it helps to have some white noise in the background to eliminate sound it does begin to elicit an altered state of consciousness, perhaps a theta state to be specific, which is very similar to the meditative states that monks in the East attain when they're practicing their meditations and things like this. And so I find it very interesting that you can induce a meditation or induce an altered state that is conducive to meditation by utilizing a physical process such as mirror gazing or the use of a psychomantium. So, so what you're actually raising right now as is, is a question, Micah, is, is I think the whole point of the show and then the whole point of your work, which is, which, which is what is actually taking place with all these phenomena. Is it a projection of something that is taking place inside ourselves as, uh, from our unconscious, from, from the cave deep within us, or are these actual real things external to ourselves? So that's the biggest question of all, but perhaps this is the right time to address it. Absolutely. There's no finer time than the present, right? Although, I mean, then again, you know, when you study this stuff enough, you know, I've, I've really had to redefine temporality altogether. So I don't know that there is anything that we could liken to being an actual present more than merely what we are perceiving right now. And that's an entirely sensory artifact. But, but that does, all that said, uh, I think that, um, I think that these things, if I had to give my best guess, best, you know, based on my research and also my skeptical leanings, which I'd like to address briefly also, I, I feel truly that this is largely, these experiences do stem from the mind, but not that they are hallucinatory or that they are merely artifacts, you know, that, that, that our imaginations produce. I think that imagination is, is one thing. That, that entails abstraction and creativity. Then I think that there are actual experiences. Carl Jung, for instance, had very similar experiences where he would induce hallucinations. And these were detailed only, uh, well, released only recently, but detailed and, and kept in a large leather-bound book that was published under the, Carl, the, the title of Carl Jung's Red Book. Um, the Red Book talked about how he'd had these interactions with archetypes. In other words, 
embodiments within his own psyche, which nonetheless seemed capable of delivering symbolic information to him that seemed to extend from far beyond anything that he, on a sensory level of awareness, could account for in his own experiential existence. In other words, he would learn things from archetypes within that seemed to dictate things to him that he had not learned himself in his own existence and his own experience on planet Earth. Um, it brings to mind something that a, a friend of mine, uh, Pamela, and I were discussing recently. Um, she, of course, having Native American history and uh, or, or you know background and, and heritage, and she said, you know, I wonder sometimes if some of the things that I experience are not genetic memory. And it is interesting to assume that maybe there are aspects of ourselves tucked away within that are not directly related to our experience on this physical plane in our lifetimes that nonetheless are capable of educating us. And I think that when we look at this, certainly that, that's a psychological study. They're looking at all of these things as being something that emanates from within, but nonetheless which seems to dictate to us what we could liken to being ancient wisdom or even knowledge that comes from someplace else. Now, I'll wrap that up very briefly just by saying that when I say my skeptical leanings on this, again, I don't think that it's irrational to say that there are aspects of the workings of our mind that stem from within that we can't fully explain and that they operate with us primarily on a archetypal and a symbological level. But, you know, you can, you can suppose these things and you can look at that, and that to me is far more rational than saying that, you know, we're being visited by aliens and that we're being abducted, which may also be happening. I won't rule anything out, but I think that while what I propose certainly in certain circles would be considered uh, avant-garde, you know, exaggerations, you know, downright uh, absurd, I think it's far more likely than some of the other odd possibilities. And again, the modern skeptic, very sadly, Peter, seems to hold the contention that, well, if we can't prove it, it doesn't exist, and we're going to always err to what conventional consensus approaches to reality tell us. There's obviously far more. We haven't discovered it all yet, but perhaps by looking within, we can come a little closer on a psychological level, on a symbological, on an archetypal level, to understanding those aspects of ourselves. And so, yes, I think that is innately skeptical in the Greek, the classical Greek philosophical sense. What can we truly know through the limitations of our own perception and senses? Michael, that's a great answer. You're stimulating so many questions that I'm going to be asking you in the next segment. As we come to the second break, it's Peter Tong for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Are you looking for better sex? Learn how to have the best sex of your life when you join Ellen Etoff and her program, Ecstatica, the way to an erotic, ecstatic love life. You'll explore every aspect of love, sex, and intimacy, and discover new realms of possibility, including the spiritual dimensions of sex. It's an adults-only world with guest experts sharing valuable tips and techniques and so much more. Cultivate the powerful energies of sexuality and an undefended heart. Listen and join in live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment. 
in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you, to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. Just want to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors for this series of shows. Sherry Chase of Chase International Real Estate Company in beautiful Lake Tahoe and Reno, Nevada. And also to thank the uh, wonderful people at Voice America, Brandy, my producer, Matt, my regular engineer, for doing such a wonderful job of, of enabling me to bring these wonderful guests to you. Uh, to help you on your awakening journey in this uh, sacred pilgrimage that we are on. And one of those wonderful guests is with me today, Micah Hanks, giving us an absolutely fascinating insight into the realms between the worlds, which are so difficult to comprehend. And Micah, you're doing a wonderful job, and thank you for that. Raymond Moody is probably best known for his work on near-death experience and interviewing lots of people who had literally died on the operating table and then interviewing them about their experiences. So where does the near-death experience from your perspective uh, fit into all of this, Micah? Well, you know, I've, I've always been interested in the uh, NDE, and I should point out that uh, you know, Raymond Moody, if I remember correctly, actually coined that term. There have been a lot of uh, uh, studies that have sought to try and understand the near-death experience, and many of the... Uh, the ideas about this, which generally involves a person with a sense of, you know, or experiencing a sense of leaving their body. There's often the uh, vision of a tunnel or a bright light. Sometimes both. Uh, these these tend to accompany the uh, traditional near-death experience. They can be different. Sometimes they they, they can you know involve neither of those things. But uh, I think that the traditional NDE. As, as Moody defined it was again, you know, the the sensation of leaving one's body and passing over to another area. Now, I've spoken with people who, on the operating table, had undergone, you know, for instance, an emergency heart surgery, and one gentleman told me very clearly, and, and it's funny because he was a skeptic. He probably would have been a person who would have laughed at, you know, things like UFOs or Bigfoot, but but he told me during my heart surgery, he said, I mean, I very very clearly remember floating up over my body, looking at myself, them doing surgery on me wasn't disturbed by it because he said I literally was outside myself. I remember looking around the room, seeing everything going on, and thinking, what am I doing here? And then, boom, coming back down, and I don't have any other conscious recollection of what happened aside from, you know, emerging from the surgery and waking up groggy. Of course, you know, still feeling the effects of anesthesia. It's interesting because people tell these sorts of stories, and uh, it is believed to be a hallucinatory experience. But nonetheless, there have been studies designed that involve things like panels suspended from the ceiling, which on the tops of these panels facing the ceiling, uh, one would 
put images, you know, an image of Marilyn Monroe or a famous actor or actress or something like that with the intention of seeing if a person could, as they leave their body, if they pass through that paneling and they're able to see the images on the other side of that panel, if the person comes back into their body, they could recount what had been seen. So there have actually been scientific studies like this that have sought to try and determine if a person is able to leave their body and if they really do seriously have an awareness of things in the environment around them that their physical body would be limited in being able to perceive. Um, it does seem that there is at very least a continuum in terms of people's descriptions of this experience and yet we've failed to the present in terms of trying to quantify or catalog the, the, uh, the validity of that experience. Uh, in other words, I think that a modern clinical definition would be that it is a hallucinatory experience that occurs uh, when a person is on the deathbed. Another individual who I had spoken with on one occasion said that uh, throughout the course of several hours of, of a near-death experience uh, where he had lapsed you know, in and out of consciousness uh, while suffering from a, a fever, he fortunately recovered and told me that throughout that period that he continually uh, as he would as he would lapse in and out of consciousness, began to experience the tunnel that is described in the near death experience. Uh, you know, I feel that obviously there is something, some component of whatever you want to call it, the soul consciousness, or some combination of the two. Both of them being unquantifiable quantities that are more philosophical concepts than actual realistic components of what we can call reality. I don't doubt that the soul or that consciousness exists but that we have a very loose understanding of what they are outside of those symbolic kind of concepts, those names, those titles we append to them. Uh, but I do think that whatever it is that exists, there's something that exists apart from merely our physical bodies. And yet I've got friends who are re religious scholars, theologians even, who say that we can't utilize that term scientifically, soul or consciousness. We have to say brain. Uh, I don't think that the summation of the spirit lies solely within the brain. Rather, I feel that... Uh, and this is an abstract concept and certainly in the realm of the speculative, but I think that, if anything, the human brain is like a computer. But for the computer to operate and to become operable, what we have to do is we have to install an operating system. There has to be software. So if the brain is the hardware, the software is consciousness or the soul, and the soul is capable of entering the body and leaving the body, but nonetheless, that awareness, the conscious awareness does not emanate from within the brain, but that the brain is the carrier of the consciousness and the awareness. And that's a very strange concept, but nonetheless, if this is indeed the truth, and if at some point on down the road, aspects of this truth are capable of being proven along the lines of theories that have been proposed by John Joe McFadden of East Surrey University, whose theory of there being an electromagnetic consciousness that actually is stored outside the brain in an electromagnetic field around it, if, if aspects of the scientific approach to this study at any point on down the road begin to verify these kinds of ideas, we will certainly begin to maybe unlock the elements of the other side in a very rational sense. But to me, my gut tells me, and maybe Peter for the time being, that's the very best I can do. My gut tells me, or my intuition, if you will, would, would lead me to believe that there is certainly an aspect of ourselves that exists apart from the body and that when we hover on the brink of you know, nearing the separation, what we would call death, that we can experience things that seem to transcend the physical and that that is the essence of the near-death experience. And whether you want to look at that as being evidence of a, hev a heaven, an afterlife, or whatever else, or merely a super-physical aspect of our reality that exists beyond the block universe as we know it, you know, I think that it certainly is some component 
that is that which bridges and points to the separation between the physical and then the actual self. And that the, the actual self is something that can exist apart from the physical shell that we call the body. Thank you. Great. I want to bring you back to Alistair Crowley because uh, you mentioned him earlier. And uh, I know at one point he was, he was quoted as being the wickedest man alive on the planet. Yeah. Um, and, and, he, and his association with uh, Ian Fleming, the writer of the James Bond novels. So, so what was Alistair Crowley all about? What was, what was his world? I think that uh, when it comes to being known as the wickedest man alive or the beast, the great beast 666, all of these things, he probably would have promoted those titles even more than, <laughs> than you know, his adversaries. But uh, Crowley, he was, a, he was an interesting character in a mixed bag. Um, I, I think that by especially Western standards, modern Western standards, a lot of what Crowley advocated was uh, – you know, vile, uh, you know, involved a lot of debauchery and, and, and the like. And yet, by the same token, there was kind of a sublime aspect to his his awareness and to his understanding of reality. Um, he was a person who, I think, culturally believed in the removal of taboos and the institution of, of, of kind of an open-ended anything-goes kind of idea for purpose of breaking down the typical cultural and sociological barriers that prevent us from being able to access what, again, in, within the context of this conversation, we might be uh, able to term as the access to the other or to the superphysical around us. Uh, he chose to utilize magic, but, you know, Crowley, you have to keep in mind, was he was a brilliant man, uh, and there's, there's simply no arguing that. He was a very talented writer. He was a person who was, uh, even prior to modern pharmacology, was an expert on the use of hallucinogens and, and different kinds of psychoactive substances. Crowley, of course, was a self-proclaimed uh, you know, mountain climber and adventurer and had done all these kinds of things and, of course, said he was a, a magician just as well. But you know, he's often quoted in that famous uh, Book of the Law, which was a, a tract that had been allegedly... Uh, I guess what we would we would call it had been kind of uh, channeled. Uh, he'd said that the information had actually come from a from a higher level of awareness, and that he had merely kind of you know channeled this. Um, I've examined that text, and it actually recommends that you read it once and then never read it again. Woe to those who come to it! And I'm certainly not a practicing Crowleyite, if you want to call it that. Although his name is actually pronounced Crowley, but um, but I think that again, if you do read certain texts like that, you'll see that, that people always gravitate toward these terms, do what thou wilt, and that shall be the whole of the law, and this will be, of course, the, the very summation of his, of his philosophy as far as most people go, and thus they look at it as one inherently based in hedonism, whereas, you know, the very next few lines would read, uh, you know, along the lines of, you know, love is the will, act according to the will, or, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not actually quoting that properly, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but he brings love into the equation and says, act according to the will, love being the will, essentially. Now, I'm sure someone out there who may be a more devoted uh, Crowleyite may, uh, may correct me on that. But again, I think that the, the, the fundamental importance here is, is that people are often selective in what they choose to look at with regard to Crowley and his life and his work. It's often more sensational to look at him as being this vile, wicked, evil person. And certainly I think that there were aspects of himself that he that, that were that and that he was comfortable, comfortable with even calling that himself. But by the same token, through the utilization of his magical practices, he hoped to strip down every barrier and reach the full potency and potential of the human spirit. And, uh, you know, throughout his life he had said some very interesting things in regard to that, such as that he had had profound admiration for 
the man, the Messiah known as Jesus Christ, but that, you know, he didn't necessarily believe that an actual devil existed. He certainly believed that there were dark entities, however, some of which very well may have, and some hold and maintain that they actually st- could still uh, haunt his uh, once home at Boleskine House there on the shores of Loch Ness. Uh, the, the the guitarist of Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page, even said that the uh, ghost of a severed head haunted that house. And, of course, that was the uh, the Mecca, according to Crowley, of the religion he founded, uh, Thelema. He believed that the, the, the Boleskine house was the actual Mecca of that, and it was a beautiful place for him. So it's very interesting. And, again, I think that there's probably good with the bad, more bad than the good. But that Crowley uh, has always fascinated me as being a person who sought to take any measure necessary uh, to try and reach beyond and to understand the full nature of not just the human experience, but the potentials that may lay beyond. And whether or not you agree with the way he went about that, Peter, I find it interesting that Crowley is a person who nonetheless was a person who was a dedicated student of the arts, not just the magical arts. I mean, he knew a little about just about everything. He was really a Renaissance man of his day. And despite the despicable nature of some of the things he involved with, and I'll just say safe it that if, you, if you'd like a an idea as to exactly you know how vile he could be, just read some of his love poems sometime. <laughs> but he was accomplished at everything from poetry to the magical arts, religious studies, history, all these kinds of things, and it even possibly worked as a spy for the government. Now, since that we're getting close to a break, we may have to get into the government spy part on the, on the other side here. <laughs> we probably won't have time for that now, actually, Michael. We've only got one segment left, amazingly. Oh. It's going so fast. But uh, we'll take our break now. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. We all want peace. We all desire a more meaningful life. We work hard to achieve these things, but at what avail? The key is authentic living with Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of the great spiritual experts of today and will provide wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your own I am. Your authenticity can give you miraculous gifts, but you have to know how to get there. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the 7th Wave Network. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. 
Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're having a fascinating discussion with Micah Hanks, who's talking about the edge between the worlds and the invisible realms in which we interconnect. And as he has said, going beyond the physical and the sometimes immeasurable aspects of life. So, Michael, just give our listeners uh, your information, how they can connect with you and your work, and also perhaps just mention something about the Paradigm Symposium that you're involved in next week. Oh, certainly. Well, of course, yeah, I've got two uh, primary websites, micahanks.com, and that's M-I-C-A-H, Hanks, just like Tom Hanks, the actor. Uh, Grayleyandreport.com also is, is my uh, more kind of unexplained themed website, which is G-R-A-L-I-E-N-Report.com. Uh, you can reach me either way. Emails are, are, are always welcome, info at micahanks.com, and I'd certainly like to hear from people. And then, of course, I always want to mention to people that, I mean, if you want to see me in the immediate sense and then maybe have a cup of coffee, you can just come to Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is actually St. Paul. The Twin Cities are side by side, and that's going to be at the Paradigm Symposium. This year we'll be holding the event at the Union Depot there in old historic St. Paul. It's going to be October 17th through the 20th, and I certainly hope to see people there. Day passes are available, and of course a fine list of speakers who will be discussing similar subjects to what we've addressed here on the program today. Fantastic. Thank you, and hope that goes well for you. Oh, I know it will. <laughs> so let's. we've talked a bit about the magical, and we've talked about some of the, the guys in the past who, who have been quite uh, infamous and, and, and famous at the same time. Let's move on and talk a bit about the mysticism in this final section. Absolutely. You know, uh, in the mysticism section, one thing that you'll find is that while we address uh, mysticism as a process across the board, and, and we certainly get into... Uh, I, as a matter of fact, I, I personally have always had an affinity, I think, for the, the Hindu scriptures and the traditions of mysticism that emanate from the East. But um, I also, you know, lend a nod to my Christian upbringing. I've, I've referred to myself over the years variously as a universal spiritualist, as also a questioning Christian. My father is an Episcopal priest, and he's kind of the... Uh, the essence of, of a lot of my, uh, you know, the, 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 or the root, rather, of a lot of the influence that has led me down this path, not only of spiritualism, but searching for the, even the nuts and bolts tangible in regard to the unexplained. But, um, you know, I, th- to look at my own mystical uh, awareness, you know, I cannot deny the influence Christianity has had on me. And a lot of people try and think, that, uh, you know, or, or make the case that Christianity is a very limiting thing. But in truth, I think that if you look at the esoteric and mystical components of Christianity, it is as wholesome and as, as educative a, a mystical learning tool as anything. And while I've encompassed, you know, the, the, the broader notion of, of mysticism, you know, within a variety of different interdisciplinary, uh, you know, traditions and, and philosophies, you know, certainly Christianity fits into that very well, if not maybe in some of the finest ways. Uh, Evelyn Underhill, of course, wrote uh, a tract on, on Christian mysticism called Mysticism. It's one of the best books on the subject. And you'll notice that even though she approaches it from a Christian perspective, in that book she also outlines uh, really the mystical process, perhaps in its very finest essence. Uh, she breaks it down either into stages, which very briefly will kind of cascade through these, the first stage being this awakening of one's consciousness to the existence of what she referred to in the book as divine reality. An ecstatic discovery of the mystical path or way. It's often sensual. It's very intense. It's a very emotional kind of experience, often with joy and exaltation. This can be the discovery of, of you know, a newfound path. This could sometimes, in, in many instances, there's a mystical com- component to actually falling in love. The second stage, however, is purgation, or rather the self-aware for the first time of divine beauty 
thus realizing by contrast its own finiteness and imperfection. The manifold illusions, as Evelyn Underhill wrote, in which it is immersed in the immense distance which separates it from the one or the other, which is very similar, and I even make this this uh, allusion in the book, Magic Mysticism of the Molecule, that you know we can compare that with Siddhartha's or Siddhartha's realization rather of these elements during his first visit with his subjects. He has this divine experience, and he realizes, well, there's something else outside what I know in, in my day-to-day rural life, and yet it's suffering and it's pain, and wow, I have to strip this down. He puts himself among the unholy, so to speak, which, of course, leads to this ascetic concept of great departure. The third stage is illumination, together with the previous two stages, and actually, to quote myself from the book directly, I wrote that it's what forms the first mystic life, being the final stage beyond which many mystics never go. The third stage, illumination, brings a certain apprehension of the absolute. It gives you kind of a taste, but not maybe a full awareness. Many of us on the mystical path are to that point. We recognize there's something more beyond. We haven't reached really the fullness of that. Those who do seek to go beyond are the ones who put themselves through true trial and true... um, what you might call spiritual starvation. This is one of the most interesting and fascinating and yet troubling of the stages. Uh, Edith Underhill referred to it as the dark night of the soul, kind of paraphrasing St. John of the Cross. Sooner or later, psychic fatigue sets in. The state of illumination begins to break up. The complementary negative consciousness appears and shows itself as an overwhelming sense of darkness and deprivation. Uh, to, to put this into context, I remember a Time magazine a few years ago after the death of Mother Teresa. Uh, publishing some of uh, some aspects of her journals, they point out that rather than being a person who was uh, embodied with certainty in her faith, Mother Teresa had actually said that for the last 20 years of her life, she had felt no connection with God. It was nothing but, but darkness, emptiness, silence. She felt all alone with her missionary work. And this is the very embodiment of this dark night of the soul, going through this period of silence and loneliness, utter loneliness, as Suavik Vojtovich uh, who had actually uh, been interviewed in the book, he talks about this also. And he had actually said that really this is the very essence of what God, what led God to create in the traditions of the God mythology, God creating life in his own image. He says the very essence of that was that God went through that dark night of the soul, this this utter loneliness. He knew utter loneliness as the absolute necessity of the fullest mystical experience as a process. And after after having known utter loneliness, his response was to create love, to create goodness, and to create it in his image, to make that which was like him so that he had not to be alone any longer, and that humans go on fulfilling the same process, unbeknownst to them throughout their lives, befriending people, making families. And even in the modern era, we seek to create artificial intelligence, you know, intelligent systems that can behave like humans in our own image. The final stage is that of union, okay, ecstasy, fullness with and, and literal literal combination, joining with the one. Now, this is embodied archetypally in a lot of different traditions, Christ's ascension, as well as the concept of uh, you know, oneness with the monad in the ancient Greek traditions and the like. And so that, that union may not even be something that in a mystical sense people will attain in this life, but I think it is the summation of, and the final stage of the mystical process as outlined by Edith Underhill in her book. And it's fascinating to look at mysticism as being an actual process. So many people think, Peter, that, well, we become enlightened and then we have all the answers. True enlightenment is the stripping down the emptying of the proverbial cup and realizing that we have so much more that we have to try and attain. Enlightenment is not the end. It is the beginning. 
Mikey, you've, you've done a phenomenal job of covering a lot of ground today. We've got nowhere near uh, the end of, of, of the story, so I'm going to uh, ask you to come back in the not-too-distant future to talk about the rest <laughs> that we haven't got to. But no. what you have done is you've given us a beautiful insight, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. To quote Paul Harvey, next time you'll hear the rest of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm absolutely delighted, uh, actually, that next week I've just had this wonderful breakthrough, uh, and, and it's been five years waiting for this moment to come. And it's the knowing that the uh, low levels of radioactivity that are present in all sorts of different natural settings in the world are actually extremely beneficial to our health. And I've been looking for a safe source of uh, radioactive uh, uranium to work with in health and healing and awakening consciousness and it all came through just uh, two weeks ago and I'm delighted that next week on the show Ian Sotar is going to join me and explain all the information and research that he has been doing to let us know and help us understand uh, this very, very great, great news for all of us to work with and help us not only live a happy and healthy life but an, an even longer happy and healthy life. So I hope you'll join me next week, and thanks to Micah Hanks for giving us a wonderful insight today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Have a wonderful week. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. We hope that you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tung for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.